My father always told me that when someone important entered the room, you should stand up to greet them. And we're about to read God's word, so why don't we stand up for the hearing of God's word? Because it is important and it is powerful and it is life to our bones. Today we are in the book of Lamentations and from Lamentations 3, we're going to pick just a few bits. I'll read a few verses, verses 1 through 6 and we'll jump ahead to verse 19. Lamentations 3 verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have, someone say it, Hope. hope. Because of the Lord's great love, We are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I feel like preaching this morning. I don't know if anyone... that. How good is that word? I said, how good is that word? You're going to have to be a bit more interactive than perhaps you normally are on a Sunday morning when I'm here. Why don't you take a seat? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and announce the title of this sermon, which is Remembering Hope. Remembering Hope. Remembering home. It's good to be here. Um, as we, are, as I've sat with this this week, I couldn't help but remember very, uh, very recently in our family. I've got three kids. I've got uh, Bailey, Mabel, and Benji. They're age ten, eight, and seven. They're all full of life. They're all great fun. And uh, Benji's in grade one, and he's getting stuck into his mathematics at the moment. And, uh, and struggling a little bit from time to time. They've just started this program called Extra Math. Has any parents in the room heard of Extra Math? There we go, the Remans. Uh, it's basically this thing that you do, it's fast math, right? You've got three seconds to do these addition things and it's supposed to teach you not just to understand the pattern but the re- like what numbers actually are. Anyway, there you go, there's a school teacher element to you. And, uh, and so they, my kids have been doing this and they're going and Benji was having a go at the addition side of extra maths and he was really battling, he was really struggling. And Benji's the sort of lad who will, uh, when something's not quite going his way, he'll throw in the towel in a big way. Uh, He'll let you know that he is not happy with the way things are going by his emotions. And so Benji just loses the plot. He starts slamming the table. He's like, I can't do this. This is, you know, rada, rada, rada. So I thought, right, this is a dad moment. And I sat him down, I said, mate, I said, you see that light bulb up there? I said, you know where it's going, don't you? I said, the man who invented that is a man called Thomas Edison. 
And you know Thomas Edison? He failed 999 times when he tried to invent that thing. And the guy from the newspaper came up to him and said, what's it like to fail 999 times? And Thomas Edison said to the man on the newspaper, the journalist, he said, I have not failed 999 times. I've succeeded in finding 999 ways that a light bulb will not work. <laughs> and so I sat him down and I said, mate, he goes, you're not failing. You're just learning how to do it. And one day it's going to click. And I thought, you know, if ever there was an inspirational fatherly moment that would just trigger him to be like, yeah, I can do that, Dad, that was the moment. And do you know what he did? He slammed his hand on the table. He said, you Dad, that's just the light bulb. These are numbers. <laughs> In that moment, my wife, who is a school teacher, her ears pricked up. And she goes, are you trying to tell me that inventing electricity is more difficult than adding numbers together? And poor old Benji sits there and then she comes over and she says, Benji, I learnt how to do this. Dad learnt how to do this. Bailey learnt how to do this. Mabel's learnt, well, is learning how to do this. Guess what? You will too. Do you know what he did? He stood up, he walked back to the, the table, opened the iPad and started having a go again. <laughs> and so here I'm going, I've given the inspirational speech, Mum's just reminded him of the fact that there's people who've done it before and she's won. <laughs> and I realised in that moment that sometimes when we're standing at the foot of what seems to be an insurmountable mountain, whatever it is that we're going through, Sometimes what we need is actually not the inspirational rah-rah speech, but we just need a good memory. Sometimes we just need to remember all the people who have scaled it before. Sometimes we just need to remember how all those people have scaled it before, that we're not alone in it, others have been through it, others have faced it, and by the grace of God, others have conquered it. And as we come to the book of Lamentations, this is precisely what we're going to see. Nick introduced that beautifully last week where he set the scene for, for what Lamentations is. The, the prophetic poet that some believe, many believe to be Jeremiah. Other scholars will tell you it's not Jeremiah. I'll leave that one up to you and not engage in the debate. But what the scene is, is that Jerusalem has been overthrown by Babylon. And when we say overthrown, it's not a nice takeover. The walls are smashed, the temple's destroyed, the people are in all sorts of peril. They've been a, you know, the city's been laid to siege, there's no food. If, if you read this, I'm realising there's children in the room, but as you read through this, you, you read some horrible things. Cannibalism has been a result of what's going on here. The city is in absolute ruins, the people are in utter despair. And the prophetic poet is lamenting. And by lamenting, he is weeping. He is weeping till his eyes have run dry. His gut is just churning within him. He is in utter turmoil. And in this place, as he surveys the scene of a ruined city and a ruined and desolate and desperate people, he pens this famous poem. And that's what Lamentations is. Chapters 1 and 2, 22 verses each beginning with the next letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, as it were. 
Chapters 1 and 2, 22 verses, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapters 4 and 5, 22 verses, each beginning, A, B, C. But then you get to chapter 3, and it's not 22 verses, but 66. Three times 22. And not A, B, C, but A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 and so on. Why does he do this? Because he wants to point out something. He wants us to understand that chapter 3 is a climactic moment in the poem. There's something in this that is significant for the Christian, for the follower of God to grab hold of and to, to, to run with. And what you'll see as you read is that 65 verses from chapter 1 onwards is lament, 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 tears, 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 groaning, 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 pain, pain, pain. The world is falling apart. Everything is terrible. And then you get to verse 66 of the poem, which is verse 20, uh, sorry, 65 of the poem, verse 21 of chapter 3, and he says, Yet this I call to mind. After all this lamenting, the poet remembers something. He calls something to mind. And he says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. A hopeless situation. A helpless situation. Yet a memory brings him hope. And I wonder for us today as we sit here at Hills Baptist Church in Allgate what the Lord wants you to call to mind this day. I don't know what situation you're in. I don't know what mountain you're facing. Everyone's facing something. Everyone's going through something. Sometimes what's big to you is small to another, but everyone's going through something and everybody needs hope. Where are we without hope? Where was the prophet without hope? Where was the nation without hope? And it didn't come through an inspirational speech. It didn't come even through the rebuilding of the walls for this prophet. No, no, it came through a memory. Yet this I call to mind. What is it that the poet calls to mind? I want to show you just a few things in the time that we have of what the poet calls to mind. What is it that he remembers that brings him hope in times of such difficulty? What is it? that his word to us is? What can we remember? What can we call to mind that no matter what we're going through, we might find hope? And the first one is this. He actually, I'm going to give you four Ps because that's how I roll. The first thing he calls to mind is actually God's personality. He actually calls to mind God's nature, the very essence of God's being, who God is. Watch this, verse 22 and 23. He says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, if there's any Bible scholars in the place, when you read this, you'll notice something interesting. Because what the poet is doing here is he is making a direct reference to Exodus chapter 34 in the 6th and 7th verse. And Exodus chapter 34 in the 6th and 7th verse is what is known as God's great self-proclamation to the nation of Israel. And what God says in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love 
and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's three words that the poet uses, three Hebrew words that give us that direct link. The first is the word chesed. Everyone say chesed. chesed. Roll your tongue on it. Chesed. It's a fun word to say. Chesed. Actually, it's translated here sometimes, uh, unfailing love. And what it literally means is that unmerited favour of God. It's this picture of, uh, if you were reading the Greek, it would be agape, which is a word many of us, if you've been in the church, are familiar with. That, that concept of this is, this is not something that I have earned. It is completely unmerited. It is not something... Uh, it, is, it is a freely given, genuine, sacrificial act of love and grace. Chesed. And he says, this is who I am. I'm the God of said the second one he uses is the word rahum everyone say rahum. rahum and what that means is this word compassionate very closely linked with that idea of chesed it's this again this picture of just abundant compassion of empathy of a god who is familiar with our suffering a god who meets us where we're at a personable god not a distant far off god who set the world in motion and then just goes off you go and ignores everything no he actually is engaged with his people. He says, this is who I am. I'm a God of unmerited favour, unmerited love, someone who is compassionate and merciful. This is who I am. This is a part of my nature. And the third one is this word, ameth. Everyone say ameth. And it means faithful and true. Great is thy faithfulness. Ameth. I am faithful. I am true. I am steadfast. I'm not someone who flips and flops one day believing this or pushing this agenda or saying this and the very next day saying something completely opposite. No, when I have spoken, I will do it. What I have set in stone, that will be accomplished. This is who I am. And because of the fact that I am faithful and I am true, guess what it means for us? We can trust him. When he speaks... It will come to pass. What he says can be trusted. And so he declares this about himself in the book of Exodus to the people of Israel as they're about to go out and and encounter all that they are about to encounter. And the prophet here, the poet, as he looks upon Jerusalem with the walls broken and the city in ruins and the people starving and dying and, and suffering, and he says... Yet this I call to mind, the character of our God, the God of love, the God of mercy, the God of compassion, the God of faithfulness. And it's fascinating because all three of these words, all three of them have parental implications. All three of them, the the word rakum, the compassion one there, it actually can also be linked to the, the picture of a womb. And so when he says these words, he's actually saying something about God's personality. He's speaking to the the father heart of God. He's speaking to the parental nature of God. The fact that God is like a perfect dad. God is like a perfect parent with his children. And a part of that in Exodus 34 is this proclamation that he will actually not allow unrighteousness 
sin shameful. He will not allow that to go unpunished. That is a part of his paternal nature is that he will actually discipline those he loves because that is what love is. We've, we've come to a place in our culture, friends, where we've, we've redefined love. I had a chat with, with someone recently who, uh, who was saying to me, Dave, you have to, you have to look at God through the lens of love. And I said to him, no, 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 no. You have to look at love through the lens of God's character. Because God is love. God is her said. You can't now say, well, this is what our culture says love is, that love is universal acceptance, that love is this act that says... I loved what Nick said last week where, where he said, the opposite of love is not anger, it's indifference. And what we've now said in our world today is actually love, love is indifference. Love is tolerance. Love is just this acceptance of every behaviour. I've got friends who their, their mandate in their parenting is to never say no. They say that's loving. They don't want their kids to hear the word now. Now, if there's someone in here who's doing that, stop it. (laughs) It's not loving. To not say no is not loving. It's stupid. (laughs) Honestly, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to bring some truth into this place. If you don't say no, you will never put a boundary around kids. I was a teacher for 10 years. You know, the kids who had the most trouble, the young people who had the most difficulty, were not those, those who were going through some stuff. It was those who had no boundaries. It was those parents who were indifferent. And what they were doing was pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to find a boundary where someone would love them enough to say no, where someone would love them enough to say, that's not good for you, stop it. And it's actually an act of love. And God is saying, this is who I am. My chesed nature, my rakun nature, my emeth nature is that I want you to grow up as a, in righteousness. I want you to be who I've created you to be. And a part of that is learning to say no. And what Israel is walking in is after hundreds of years of prophetic words saying, turn from your sin, stop worshipping that wooden stick. Stop chasing after all this nonsense that you're chasing after. It's not good for you. Come back to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. Hundreds of years in the patience patience of the parental heart of God. And finally, God says, enough is enough. I'm going to hand you over to the Babylonians that you might find that boundary and return to me. Because I will punish the sins. But it's not, it's not out of anger. It's not, again, a flippant punishment. No, it's a father heart, a merciful heart, a compassionate heart. And because of that, even in discipline, the poet has hope. Because he knows that God is a good, good father. Merciful and compassionate and true. And it gives him hope in that fatherly nature. That God is not going to destroy them, but rather God is going to bring them back and bring them out. And it gives him great hope. You know, pain, pain is not evil. We've decided in our culture that pain is bad. Pain is not bad. Pain just reminds us that something's broken. Pain is actually a gift of God to remind us that something is broken and needs healing. When we look at the world... The world is full of pain. Each and I'm looking around this room. I'm seeing people 
who have experienced great pain. But God is not absent from that. <coughs> he is with you in that. He loves you. He is for you. And he's, every time we encounter that pain, it's this picture that something is broken and it needs healing. And that brings us to his promise that a day will come when he will set all things right and he will make everything redeemed and there will be no more pain because nothing will be broken. And in that moment, that gives us hope, friends. Is there anybody here who, who takes hope from that promise of God? This is the Father heart of God. Second thing he remembers. The second thing he remembers is God's purpose. There's your second P. God's personality, the second thing he remembers is God's purpose. Do you know God's sovereignty is not isolated to our story? God's sovereignty is not isolated to our story. The purpose of God throughout Scripture is not to raise up an individual. Well, it is ultimately in Christ. But actually, he's come for a people. God is the God of a people. He calls Israel. He is establishing his church to bring about a pure, spotless bride for the Son. And in this moment, as, as the poet recalls Exodus 34, and as you read through the Lamentations, it's this fascinating picture where the language will flip from we to, to me, from I to our. He, he is, he's relating his own experience to that of the people. He sees himself as the people. He recognises that God's purpose, it's not just about him, it's about God's plan and purpose throughout history. That God's, it's not just about you and me right here, right now. No, no, no. He identifies. He looks through the lens of God's sovereignty throughout human history. And what he gains hope in is actually a story from long ago that he never lived. And it brings him hope for a future that he will actually never experience. But it brings him hope because he understands it's not just about him. It's about what God is doing in eternity. We have become so individualistic in our society that we've lost the fact that God wants to move in community. That God is building a people. This is why church is important. This is why you should come to church. Not once a month. Not once every six weeks. No, come to church. Come to church. Don't come to consume. Don't come to judge and critique. Come to be in community. Because it's in community that you experience the hope of God. It's in community that you recognise that someone else has faced a mountain that I'm about to face. Yeah? I love what he does here by going back to that Exodus 34 picture, by declaring that the nature of what God is doing. What he's doing is he's, he's casting his mind all the way back to Abraham. And he's remembering Moses. And he's remembering Joshua. And he's remembering the walls of Jericho which came tumbling down. And he's remembering King David. And he's remembering Gideon. And he's remembering all these, these great legends of the past. And he's positioning himself and the people of Israel with that broader story. If God came through for Israel despite 400 years in slavery in Egypt, guess what he's going to do? He's going to come through for us. If he came through then, he's going to come through now. If he came through then, he's going to come through now. Maybe some of you in this room 
No, to not just look to Abraham and not just look to Isaac and not just look to Jacob and not just look to King David and not just look to Paul and John and Peter and not just look to, you know, the early church fathers. Don't just look to the Reformation and Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and these guys. Don't just look to Billy Graham. Maybe some of you need to look to the Moyles and some of you need to look to the Bairds and some of you need to look to the Remans and some of you need to look like... There's people around you right here who have been through stuff and they will testify. They've got, they will give witness to the fact that God is faithful. Come on, someone. Amen. Amen. God is faithful. He never promises that we won't go through stuff. He never promises a perfect, comfortable life. No, he promises that he will, he will form us in his likeness. And you can't grow whilst you're comfortable. Growth only occurs on the other side of comfort. So God will stretch us. God will bring us up the mountain to form us in his image. For his glory. To achieve his purpose in the fullness of time. And it brings the poet hope, friends. Hope. Hope. His entire life, if this is Jeremiah writing this, we, we studied this in lockdown, he's an utter failure in every element of his life in, in, the, in the, guise of the, the eyes of the world. No one listened to him. No one listened to him at all. He didn't have a crowd, no one liked him, and he died. No, there's zero success, and yet he was faithful and true to God's word because God was faithful to him. God was faithful to him. He remembers God's purpose. It's not just about you and me. It's about we. Number three, he remembers that God is his portion. Verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Everyone say portion. portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Ooh. Yeah. It is good to suffer, is what he's saying, when you're young. No one taught you that in Sunday school. <laughs> Let him sit alone in silence. For the Lord has laid it on him. As Nick said last week, what they've realised is this is the hand of God, but it's the fatherly hand of God. It's the hand of God that's allowing this for the purpose of repentance and redemption and refining. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. He remembers that God is his portion, that God is all that he needs. God is sufficiency. How is he sufficient? What is the portion that God gives? Three, three more quick P's for you. The first one is his presence. What is the promise that we have? What is the promise of Christ? This is where he's speaking actually prophetically forward to who, who Jesus is and was and would be for the people of God. This fulfilment of all that Christ came to do. And the promise of God, the promise of Christ to his church in Matthew 28 is what? Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Hebrews 13.5 says, I am with you always. We have the promise of God's presence. And friends, 
no matter what you're going through, no matter what the author, the poet here was going through, what the people of God were going through is like, God is with us. He is our portion. And because he is our portion, we have hope. Because his presence is with us, we have hope. Why? Because he is compassionate, he is loving, and he's faithful. And his promise to us, because he's faithful to his word, is that he is with us in the midst of our trial. What hope that brings. He is not unfamiliar with our suffering. That though we experience the bitterness and the gall, as it said, guess what? God himself has experienced the bitterness and the gall in Christ. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be spat on and abused and accursed. He knows your suffering and he knows it intimately and from and he's and he's and his heart is for you in all of that. That you would know that you're not alone. What other God would come for his people? The answer is none. He is our portion. He's given us his presence. Secondly, as we just said, he's given us his great and precious promises. There's a, there's a story that preachers love to tell about... Uh, a young man whose father, a wealthy father, passed away. And, uh, and he knew that his father had left him the, the full estate, the full inheritance. Uh, so he went to, went to court, went to trial to, uh, to receive that inheritance. And as he, as he did, the judge stood up there and said, well, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence that, that this is yours? And so he was, he was in the court and he didn't have the evidence. So they adjourned the court for a bit and he went home. And as he went home, he searched high and low. He went to the study and he searched through all the books and eventually he went to the filing cabinet and found this book wrapped in a red ribbon, which was the will. And he opened the will up and in it was the father's promise to him that the estate was his. And he went back to the judge and said, here it is. And friends, God has given us his great and precious promises wrapped in a red ribbon. That we would come to his word, that we would read this word, that we would know this word, that we would find his precious promises to us in here and in so doing have hope. I'm so convinced that the church at the moment is so consumed with Netflix, Stan, Apple TV, keep going on with all the streaming devices that we're becoming biblically illiterate. We know a whole lot about Downton Abbey. It's awfully quiet in here. <laughs> we know a whole lot about how the crows went the other night. We know a whole lot about a whole lot of things and yet we don't know his promises to us. What would it look like if the church knew the promises of God? What would it look like if these promises were written upon our heart? What would it look like when we stood before the mountain instead of fearing and trembling and saying, God, where are you? We knew the promises of God and we, stood, we, we looked that mountain in the eye. I know that's a weird analogy. And we just said, here's the promise of God. He is with me and he will always be with me. He is faithful and true. He is merciful and compassionate. Third way that God is our portion is that he brings us his provision. He's our provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. You know, even for Israel in the midst of their torment, even for Judah in this, this moment of utter depravity, God 
provided for their needs. God set aside people. While this is going on, guess who God is raising up in Babylon? Daniel. Daniel. And his three mates. What is God doing while this is happening? He's actually revealing himself to King Nebuchadnezzar, the high king. He's actually revealing himself, who my biblical Old Testament professor called Uncle Neb, because he was convinced that Uncle Neb came to faith. God was already making a way for Judah's return. He was already paving a path for their redemption. He was already promising that the temple would be rebuilt. He was already promising that he was going to send his son. He was already promising that he would make a way, that he would, he would carve out the path in history, that Christ was coming, the church was going to be established, and that a day would come when we will be seated with Christ on high. Amen? Amen. He provides for all our needs. And the last thing that this does is it renews his path. Go to verse 37 and 40. Band, you can come up. And we'll close. Verse 37. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. God's renewing their path. Through all of these things, God is renewing their path. He's bringing them to this place of repentance. The poet, in the midst of his lament, finds himself remembering the nature of God, the the heart of God, the, the personality of God. He finds himself remembering the purposes of God in human history to raise up his people and redeem his people and bring his people out of slavery and to make them a great and mighty nation. He remembers these things. He remembers that God is his portion, that God is not going to leave him, that God is going to provide for their needs. That's who God is. And because of that, it renews his path. He goes from this bitter lamenting and he just has this moment in time where he declares, let us repent. Let us turn from what we've been doing and let us wait upon the Lord. Let us fix our eyes upon the Lord. Let us come to our merciful, loving, compassionate God who is faithful. And guess what? He's not just faithful once. His faithfulness never grows stale. His faithfulness is fresh every morning. Amen? Amen. You know, I've got this picture in my mind of like a beautiful fresh carrot that you put in the hummus and crack and it's great. Maybe some of you don't like carrots and hummus. You know, this beautiful, like fresh, this is God's mercies to us every morning. Guess what? I don't know about you. I need them fresh every morning. You? Every morning they're fresh. They never grow stale. They never wear out. They never grow dry. Every single morning our faithful God is true and he brings a fresh mercy. He brings fresh compassion. He pours out fresh chesed, the the, the loving kindness. He pours it out upon his people every day. And what that does is it brings us to our knees. It says God's kindness leads us towards repentance. God's kindness leads us towards repentance. He's remembering the goodness of God. Oh, I'm thinking of that song. I will sing of the goodness of God. His mercies never run dry. Ever, 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 
ever. And I love that verse. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe it's midnight for you. Can I tell you the promise of God? Joy is coming in the morning. That morning for the poet didn't happen for 70 years. But the morning's coming. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Why? Because we have a God who is faithful and true. We have a God who is full of compassion, who is full of mercy. That is his nature. The parent, the father heart of God would draw us to that place. 2 Timothy 2. When I am faithless, what is he? Faithful. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. This light and momentary affliction is bearing up for us a greater weight of glory. I wonder if we can look at the mountain, if we can look at midnight, and we can see the glory of God. We can see the heart of God. We can look to the cross. We can look to our Saviour, and we can know that he's never abandoned us. He's never forsaken us. He's come for us and he has poured out such great love that all who would hope in him would find rest, even in the time of trial. Would you stand to your feet, church? This passage reminds me of that beautiful passage verse which says let's be transformed by the renewing of our mind then we will know what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will the poet is being transformed by the renewing of his mind he's remembering the character of God I just want to pray over some people today whose minds need some renewing so I'm actually I don't know if you do this very often here but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and Dr. Dan, you can play. And if you're someone in this moment who just needs a renewing of your mind, maybe you're really struggling with some anxiety at the moment. There's something that's just hovering over you that is causing you to worry and stress and have no hope. You can't see the light from the darkness. You can't see the door at the end of the tunnel. You can't See the hope of God in the midst of your situation. And I wonder if you just need your mind renewed this morning. Because of his great mercy, we are not consumed. You will not be consumed. You will not be consumed. You will not be consumed. Because our God is faithful. If that's you and you just would love some prayer right now, can you just pop your hand up while no one's looking? Just pop your hand up. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, awesome. Praise God. Let's pray, church. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in this place. We thank you that you call us to do life together. We thank you that you call us to do life in community. We thank you for the encouragement that comes as we look to our left and we look to our right and we see those who have walked the distance and walked the journey and have a testimony of faith 
and have a testimony of your faithfulness. And Father, we pray over our brothers and sisters right now who find themselves in that valley, who find themselves wondering where the light is, Lord. Would you just renew their minds this morning with the great promise that you are faithful, with the great picture of the Son of God who would come to take away the sin of the world. Not, not just take away the sin of the world, but to carry us and to bring us and to seat us with you in high places. The one who will come and you will, you will lay every tear down. You will lay all pain aside and there will be great rejoicing. We thank you, Lord. By the power of your spirit, would you come and would you move in our midst right now, Father? Would you move in our midst? Would you offer hope? Would we get a picture, Lord, that because of your great love, we are not consumed? For your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. May we call this to mind this day. May we call this to mind tomorrow. May we call this to mind Tuesday. May we call this to mind Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday when we come back here next Sunday. May we have been calling this to mind, your nature, your character, your goodness to us. And may we come with hearts full of faith, ready to celebrate the great work that the Lord has done. And may we encourage each other. May we call others to this same remembrance as the poet does for the nation of Israel, as the poet does for the church thousands of years later. May, he call, may we call each other to this place of remembrance. The Lord is good. The Lord is faithful. His compassions never fail. And his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, would you take this word, would you solidify it in our hearts? That we would run and not grow weary. That we would walk and not grow faint. Rather that we would rise on the wings of eagles. Knowing that you are faithful. In the precious name of your son we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.